At Aylin Junior High in Puyallup, I remember learning about Chief Joseph in history class. It was part of Washington's curriculum, perhaps a bit of a semester on the subject, spoken only in the past. Well, we know the First Peoples are still here and fighting for recognition on many human and legal matters. And there is so much history to learn and unlearn. So I was excited to sit down with Nez Perce Chairman Sam Penny and hear about opportunities to learn about the Nez Perce language and culture. We spoke about Watskuitin, a collection of artifacts that the Nez Perce brought back, and eventually money also returned to the tribe. going to talk about the artifacts and collections that came back. Do you mind starting from the beginning in the 70s? My understanding is that, you know, it was discovered that it was back in Oberlin College, stored in a basement in boxes. Uh, no one knew they were there. And then eventually the tribe worked out a loan agreement to have those uh, items brought here for display, and they were here for a number of years until the, at the time the Ohio Historical Society, which is now the Ohio Historical Connection, won those items back in the mid-90s. So they were on display here for several years, and uh, that's how the collection uh, came here. Came here, and on then, a they, loan agreement. then they wanted it back? Well, at the time, the Ohio Historical Society, I think their executive director, his name was Gary Ness, sent a letter to then... Nespers National Historical Park Superintendent Frank Walker saying that they wanted the items returned and then a little bit later on then they it was almost like a demand letter to return the items. That must have been really upsetting for it was for especially <laughs> not only for the Nespers tribe, but you know, look at most comments from elders and others, you know, they they all say that those items, you know, rightfully belong here in their homeland. So that was kind of the focus on on the fundraising and getting the collection back here. I had heard, or I mean, I read that the fundraising in the late 90s w- was like $600,000. Well, yes, it's supposed to raise $600,000, $608,100 within six months. That's insane. Yeah. What <laughs> won the price in the late 90s? Yeah. And then the short amount of time you guys had to raise the funds. What did you do to get the money? So the full appraisal value was a $608,100, so that's what they wanted. And the tribe decided that, you no, know, we want those. We would try to purchase the items so we could have them here, keep them here in their homeland. So initially we started out, and then we hired uh, a, uh, Tom Hudson as a fundraiser. And he did a lot of work, as well as we had an elders committee that worked for the tribe to start the fundraising. So that's kind of how, how it began. And then uh, after that, you know, it went not only nationally uh, here, but internationally to other countries as well. I'm glad to hear that. So there was support from around the world to get your items back. Well, some of the documentation I saw was, you know, Switzerland, Japan, Germany, plus some other countries. But the thing that really touched me was a number of school children, 
I think there were over 50 schools that, you know, donated money. I had the opportunity to go to some of the schools to personally get the money presented to the tribe. And the one I remember most is at a school in the Boise area where the students had raised, they had two water jugs, you know, like water yes. jugs. They were full, both full. And so they gave them to me, and they were, of course, quite heavy. I t- <laughs> had taken them to the bank, and they had over 800 dollars in that the children those water jars yeah. oh with all their pennies and coins yeah all coins why did that touch you well just that that they saw the importance that you know those items belonged here they thought it was the right thing to do i think in most people's mind especially the children we get letters from uh, children uh, even today around the world you know interested in nespers tribe history and wanting to know more about the tribe so I think just, you know, what, at that young, especially at that young age, to recognize the importance of the items and recognize the importance of those items being here in Nesper's homeland. It's beautiful that the young, young and innocent ones recognize the truth before the grown-ups. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you essentially bought back your own things. What were those items, if you could describe for the listener? Well, there's several. I can't remember all of them. There's, you know, quite a collection. But, you know, the ones I remember are the, of course, the women's dress, uh, the cradle board. Yeah. Uh, I made two trips back to uh, Columbus, uh, once to Columbus and then once to Lima, Ohio, where the cradle board was. Just the, the design of it and, uh, you know, the beadwork that was on it. And its value alone at that time was $25,000. So I think that item, the women's dresses, uh, some of the other items that were within the collection, and I think just the the nature of uh, the artistic nature and the the way that they constructed those items are important to not not only to them at the time, but now because we have people come and look see how how they're designed, and tribe members can come in and study those items and use them in their own making of their own traditional. Regalia. To learn from the past? Yes. To, to, to continue the craft? Right. Oh, that's, that's good. And when you were there, was there a moment when, you, when the box was opened, what, what did that feel like for you? Well, most of the, of course, most of the items were already here. They were still here. And we went back. When I went back, I went back to meet with the Board of Trustees. And you know, we were discussing the, the sale of the items, return of the items. And I think there's a big difference uh, from my view and others' views at the time when they're Ohio Historical Society. I think they were looking at more of the monetary value and the value that it might be mean to the their constituents and not really looking at the cultural and historical value that it had for the tribe. But when they became the Ohio Historical Connection, they had a different, a little bit of different outlook on... Uh, they. In a letter, they indicated uh, to myself and to the Nespers Trothers Deck Committee that they were unaware until recently that that the night that the tribe had to purchase those items back. So, they had a new board, new leadership after a couple of decades, and then they wrote you and said, "Oh my gosh, this should not have happened." Then what ha- did they did they come and say sorry? <laughs> Well, early on, I had a couple, a couple of calls from their executive director and CEO. He, he talked about 
the items and you know wanting to meet with the tribe so and it indicated in their earlier letter that they the board had voted in September of 2021 to return the funds to the tribe and I, com I commend the board for their action uh, I think one of the key things they had a, a gentleman named Chief uh, Chief Billy Friend that's on the board of trustees who's Native American and I think you know, by having him and Alex and others that understand tribal history, culture, and traditions, that I think that probably helped. When I read about that in the paper, I was I was overwhelmed with joy, but a bit like um, restitution. Like, yeah, you should have. That's the right thing to do. And when it comes to these artifacts, I find that, well, I believe there's some federal laws now that you can't just dig things up and take them for yourself, right? Yes. Well, Congress passed the Native American Graves Repatriation Act. I think that was a very important step in making sure that on the tribes that are affected that they're repatriated to those tribes. And it also, I think, it requires museums to submit an inventory of items that affiliated with with the tribe in this case Nesper's tribe stay connected with nwpb by following us on facebook twitter and instagram search nwp broadcasting on any of these platforms and press the follow button that's nwp broadcasting on facebook twitter and instagram and you will never miss a post from us What are your thoughts about buying back your own things? Now, I know that they gave money back, but the tribe is also buying land, uh, which should be yours anyway. Well, on the Spalding Allen collection, you know, just the way they were collected and the, you know, the value at that time, I don't know what it was, it wasn't very much, $57 or a little bit more than that, but, and then compared to the 608000 you know, just, I guess just the thought of those items, you know, leaving their homeland. And one elder mentioned to me, my ancestors or your ancestors wore these items at some time through the Nespers culture and tradition. Those type of items are handed down to family member to family member. So, you know, if those items would have remained here initially, they would have eventually been handed down to someone else, uh, usually within their family. So... They just, they just right, rightfully belonged here. As far as land, you know, that's, that's always a difficult question because I often think about, you know, the tribe, you know, purchasing, repurchasing land that, you know, is our traditional homeland, still within our Nespers Tribe 1855 treaty area, and especially in northeast Oregon where, you know, they were, actually forced off the reservation and onto the current reservation, which is 1863 boundary. And Nesper tribal members still to this day refer to the 1863 treaty as the Steel Treaty. Not all agreed, not all chiefs agreed to that treaty. And I always think of uh, Chief Joseph's story. Say someone comes to you or someone comes to me and asks me if I want to buy my horses and I tell him no. Then he goes to my neighbor and my neighbor says, yeah, yes, I'll sell you Joseph horses. He says, well, sounds like what right does someone else have to sell my homeland? So that that's kind of the comparison. And 
you know, a lot of tribe members, uh, including myself, you know, really still think about, you know, how the land was acquired. And uh, even when I drive, you know, I live in Cami, Idaho, about almost 70 miles from here, but, you know, driving through there that thinking, you know, all this, you know, <laughs> Nespers tribal land, you know, through homesteading, uh, General Allotment Act, all the federal laws that impacted the tribe. and But I think the tribe, you know, has uh, consulted with our tribe members uh, through what's called the Snake River Basin Adjudication Settlement, which is a water rights settlement, which the tribe received funds. But the number one priority from the survey of tribe membership was land purchase. Well, I know with the recent administration, it feels more supportive. Do you feel like in recent years, tribal needs and concerns are getting more attention than it did in the past? Well, I think in the last, of course it varies, <laughs> depending on what, which administration. I was first elected in 1989. I currently serve my 10th three-year term. Ah. So over those years, you know, some secretaries are might be favorable to tribes, others not. It just, just depends on the administration. Right now, we have uh, administration that's uh, favorable to the interests of the tribes and are trying to involve the tribes more and more. Uh, uh, my nephew, one of my nephews, is a uh, senior advisor uh, to one of the departments at the Department of Commerce uh, it, regarding fisheries. Nice. So we have people that I think within administration that understand the tribal interests, you know, the tribal values, and hopefully that will move us along getting some of the things done that we... Is it hard to to explain tribal values to non... It, it is. You know, it's uh, sometimes it's continuous. I mean, you know, we, you know, I hear a lot of the tribalists say, well, we educate, then we re-educate, and then... You know, if a new administration comes in, you start all over again. And we, we do provide trainings or information to whoever requests it. But what about just the average Joe? How does a person learn about tribal ways of life and what is sacred to you so they can better understand it? Well, I think we are making progress as far as um, getting Native American teachers in the classrooms. And I think that's... That's really helped. And the tribes in the area, uh, Nesper tribe's been involved in several advisory boards. Uh, I've been personally involved with the advisory board to the president at WSU, uh, advisory board at, at U of I, and at LCSC. So we, we talk about a number of things, not only recruitment and retention, you know, housing, all, all those things, but we also talk about some of the academic programs that offered and a, a good example I guess as far as culture is that at Lewis and Clark State College you know you can take Nespers language as your as a language requirement for wow. credit so you know, it's working cooperatively with the, the for a lot of the school districts you know they can take uh, courses for college credit excellent yeah so I think there's been a lot of progress made as far as uh, educational opportunities I feel like more native news needs to be in the mainstream because uh, I don't like that I grew up not knowing individual names of tribes in the Northwest. So more exposure would be good for everybody. Mm -hmm. 
I think. <laughs> yeah, and I think through the you know, Desperate has a Desperate Tribe website, and then as I mentioned earlier, you know, we do uh, send staff to do trainings for different entities, and you know, our staff, our cultural resource staff, are always uh, willing and able to help. So the young girl says, well, "I'm studying Nespers, I want to know more." Oh. So they'll they'll send them information, you know, usually through email, and that's wonderful. I think that's a good start. You know, those young people, you know, wanting to learn more about not only Nespers tribe but uh, certain other tribes. So yeah. I think that's a way to help them understand that you know, there are different cultures, and there are different people, and, and different ways of thinking, and it doesn't yeah. have to be scary. Did you know you can find us on NPR's podcasts? Just look up Traverse Talks at npr.org and enjoy. Chairman, what do you want people to understand about the Nez Perce? Well, if you look back in history, prior to Lewis and Clark expedition, during Lewis and Clark expedition, in a lot of the places I've been on behalf of the tribe, travel, have the opportunity to meet with, you know, congressmen, senators, and uh, met several presidents. You know, I've been able to go to the White House several times. And I, I think it's just you know, the Nespers people, and you look back in history, you know, they always see that the Nespers people were friendly people. They, and they were. They were hospitable. I remember former senator said, <laughs> when I was back in D- Washington, D.C., at the U.S. Capitol at a reception, he introduced me to he says, well, if it weren't for the Nespers tribe, uh, the expedition would never survive. No. And then uh, I went to the, invited to the U.S. Navy Club in Washington, D.C. for lunch. And I walked in there and then I see a picture of Chief Joseph on the wall. I think that you know, clear, clear back to then, our ancestors were understood, you know, what, you know, what it meant to look out for not only what's currently going on, but future generations. And that's even like a lot of the work that we do as Nesper Tolly Deaf Community. It's not, you know, it might not happen in the next few months, few years, but it might, might be several years down the road that you know, we're trying to protect the interests of the tribe. But I, I think the tribe been, you know, very resilient in even, even though the intent of the federal government through some of their federal policies, uh, a lot of us to exterminate the Indians. And a lot of our tribe members, especially elders, says, you know, we're here, you know, we're, we're going to be here, we're going to be here forever, and that, and that you do need to work with us, because we're going to be here, and we're going to continue to fight and protect our, our rights that we've reserved. Yeah. I have two more questions, maybe a little difficult. One is about what was happening in Canada when they found uh, graves of children at former Indian schools. Were Nez Perce people taken away too to Indian schools? Yeah, there were Indian schools. Uh, Most recent one where I saw, that I saw was the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. Uh, A gentleman sent uh, a list of children that were buried there. Hmm. I don't know if they were all children, but sent a list of Nespers that were buried uh, there in Pennsylvania. And then there's, there were uh, boarding schools here in this area, 
in other areas. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking when you see, you know, those children, in many instances, forcefully taken taken away or forced to go, uh, then be away from their families. I can't imagine how it would be any of us would feel if we were young and, you know, if we were forcefully t- told to go somewhere and not see your family, you know, for months or years or maybe not forever. But, you know, it's hard to imagine what... We, we may never know what everything that they went through. Mm. And that's what you read a lot where, you know, some of them running away, you know, a lot of them ran away because they couldn't, they didn't want to be there. Yeah. Don't blame them. Yeah. And part of that was part of the genocide of dismantling the Native American people, right? Taking their children away so that there would be this break in cultural passing down culture, how has the Nez Perce been able to hold on to culture if, if there's been all these outside forces trying to dismantle it? The best example I can think of right now is the Nez Perce language program. You know, we have elders, some have since passed in the last uh, few years that you know, were strong advocates you know, to teach Nez Perce language. A lot of them did it on their own. Wow. And I saw you have a dictionary. Yeah, and there's a, a gentleman named Ayoki did a Nespers dictionary that a lot of people use. And then the Nespers, our language staff developed a Nespers tribal app where you can download the app. So children, young children, and I'll use my grandchildren's examples, uh, they're still very young. They're being taught Nespers language. And I think that no, just the survival of Nespers language has been important. Often tell, and then we have that generation where, you know, including my mother, you know, this whole group that I often wonder, well, why, why did they never, why didn't they teach us more Nespers language? But you know, they were of that generation where they were punished. You read accounts where some were, you know, whipped, actually whipped for speaking their language. So after I thought more about that you know they I think they just didn't want us to have to deal with with that but I think with for the revitalization of the Nespers language uh, you know my grandchildren has, has to tell people I said they probably know more Nespers language than I do because they they started that's when you have to start from that young, young. and then they that's how they learn it. yeah language is such a, a binding factor for culture for sure Hmm. Well, Chairman, thank you so much for this conversation. You're welcome. Glad to be here.